You're listening to Old Timey Crimey, crimes from the golden age of yesteryear. Now, here are your hosts, Christy, Amber, and Scott. Timey Crimey. I'm Christy. I'm Scott. I'm Amber. And we are here with your weekly do- dose of historical true crime, telling you about the old crimes that are sometimes buried and forgotten. Before we get to all the grim details, uh, don't forget our, about our Patreon. That is patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, where you can get access to bonus episodes at the $5 level. And we have lots of fun stuff over there. Amber just told us a really fascinating story about a very enterprising woman when it came to um, death. Her business <laughs> is murder. Yes, it, it very really much was. was. She was so good at it. Really? Yeah, yeah. She was very talented. She was the Elon Musk of murder. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So yeah, come check that out. And don't forget, you can always, if you want to do something that is free to show us your appreciation, you can review us over on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever the heck it's called now. And, you know, like five stars is nice. We like we like a five stars. And uh, tell us what your favorite case is. It doesn't, you don't even have to lavish us with praise. Although, if you feel like it, we're not going to stop you, honestly. We're, we're not. So... All right, all that aside, let's talk about the Lipstick Killer, who may or may not have been uh, a killer, may or may not have had anything to do with lipstick. (laughs) So, all right, first we're going to talk about Josephine Ross. Now, this starts off in Chicago in 1945. It's early summer, it's June, the war is, World War II is still going on. But it will end at last in just a few months. So, you know, things are starting to, it's starting to be more clear that things are going to wind down soon enough. In that time, Josephine Ross was 43 and she was living in a little apartment on Chicago's north side. She was unemployed. One paper called her, quote, an attractive brunette because looks are all that matters. Finally, Uh, somebody says it. You're so brave, Christy. (laughs) I know, right? You know, I'm I'm not afraid to be edgy, uh, and uh, I'm not ashamed of it. So, <laughs> um, now I have some information about her life that I got from Find a Grave, and as a source, it can be kind of spotty. Somebody did some family research on Josephine, but a lot of it comes from census records, so I'm feeling pretty confident. Uh, she was born in 1902 in Hayfield, Minnesota. And just as you'd imagine a town called Hayfield is, it was a tiny town then. The population was 439, but it was only 1.27 square miles. So that's like 345 people per square mile. So actually kind of packed. <laughs> so, And even since then, it has barely tripled in over 120 years. It's, 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 not, it's not a big town even now. She was the fourth of five children and the only girl in the bunch. Wasn't a privileged upbringing by any means. Her parents were separated or possibly divorced by the time she was three. Her mother worked as a washerwoman and her father went off to have two more kids with his new wife. So in Josephine's teen years, she got some half brothers. And by the time she was 18, 
her mother had found employment and housing with a reverend and his two kids. And so uh, Josephine's mother and, and some of the kids lived in the house while her mother worked as a housekeeper for the reverend. At age 20, Josephine married John P. Walsh. They had one child, Mary Jane, in 1925. And then it gets a little kind of shaky as far as what happened uh, in the next couple of years. She ended up having a child in 1927. So just two years later, Jacqueline Ann Miller. So not Walsh. So that means that something had happened to John Walsh, whether he died or they got divorced. And there were no records of the father or a marriage, so we don't really know where that comes from. Soon after that, she moves to Chicago, and uh, she does answer the 1930 census with the information that she's widowed, but she's still using the Walsh name in there. But not for long, because she meets and marries Herbert P. Ross, and they were together until his death in 1944. Seems like she was really counting on the insurance money from that death because she wanted to start up a restaurant, but she was fighting with the insurance company and never got the money. So by June, 1945, she's living in uh, this little apartment with Mary Jane and Jacqueline. They would have been 17 and 20. Jesus, Both of them. Wouldn't that have been a twist if it was the insurance company that offed her? <laughs> we've, we've had so many stories about people offing, offing others for the insurance. What if, what if just on this occasion, the insurance company went, you know what? Everybody else is getting away with murder. Let's see what we can do. I really don't want to pay out this woman. Let's kill her. That is a hell of a conspiracy theory. But imagine if they did at writ large, they could, they could save a lot of money. They really could. They really could. I think that's the way Geico does their business. <laughs> because, I mean, she, her daughters are, are 17 and 20. And while they, they seem like capable young women, you know, if that insurance claim would then pass on to them, do you think at 17 and 20, they're really equipped to deal with a bureaucracy like an insurance company? Absolutely not. I'm 48. I can't deal with the insurance company now. It's, exactly. It's, it's honestly just easier for me to get sick and die. <laughs> So the daughters are working, but Josie was unemployed. She liked to go to the movies, go to fortune tellers. She was uh, did have a social life. She was seeing some, some men and was possibly engaged to one man. And then on Tuesday, June 5th, 1945, Jacqueline and Mary Jane go off to work. Josie, Josephine wakes up, says, you know, like a, a little chit-chat with them, then goes back to bed. And... Now, a little bit of time passes, and then it's early afternoon. And around this time, two people in the apartment building separately see someone on the fire escape using it to exit the building. It was around 1 p.m., and neither of them knew this individual. One said that he was slender. The other says he was 190, but they did seem to agree that he was swarthy. He had thick black hair, and he was neatly dressed in dark pants and a white sweater. And my question that I have there, and this is very important. In June? Why was he wearing a sweater in June? I'm uncomfortable yeah, at the very thought. It is Chicago. I wear sweaters in June. It is Chicago. That's true. That's true. I'm. I'm. I very... always have a sweater because you never know, like air conditioning or if you catch a chill. Like I always have a sweater. 
Do you but know, they didn't have AC back then, so that one wasn't possible. Do you know I actually here here's here's something listeners may not know. I wear shorts year round. My my poor wife has to beg me, beg me to wear pants. And we've come up with an arrangement. Below 15 degrees, I will wear pants. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Scott is one of those people that you see wearing shorts in January in Pennsylvania. And you're like, the hell is his deal? On, on Friday, we went to Walmart. As we're getting into the car, this woman looks over and goes, my God, that man has the right idea. I am so warm right now. I wish I was wearing shorts. <laughs> All right, so. I won. I won. <laughs> you won. Just one so time. Sweat Sweater-wearing man was seen on the fire escape. And then, so that was around 1 p.m. At 1.30, Jacqueline comes home for lunch. And she finds, she finds her mother's body. And it's, it's, it's really rough. I don't know how anyone would get through this. So she gets to the apartment. It's been torn apart. And then she goes to the bedroom and she finds Josephine naked and bloody. She's on the bed and there's just blood everywhere. It's on the mattress. It's on the walls, the drapes. Josephine had been stabbed four times in the throat. And then an, an odd little thing that we haven't really seen too often. Her murderer had put adhesive tape over the biggest wound and then tied a red dress around her neck like he was trying to staunch the blood or hide the wounds in some way, either from himself or from somewhere, someone else. I don't know what the, what the thought process there was. Regret? Uh, I doubt it. Trying to keep her alive for longer? Hmm. I, th I think it was more of a to cover her face thing. Like, I don't want to look at her face anymore. But what about the adhesive uh, tape on the wound? Like trying to almost bandage it. I probably he hit an artery and he's just trying to trying to like stay clean. Maybe there was some evidence that something had gone on as far as cleaning was concerned because there was bloody water in the tub, and in that bloody water was soaking uh, some like what the, what the one newspaper called night garments. So I'm imagining maybe like lingerie, nightgowns, something along those lines undergarments as well possibly and now the apartment looked like it had been ransacked but really the only sign of a robbery the only thing missing was there was some spare change stolen and that's that's it as far as they can tell and the police they they kind of try to figure out what happened and they think that she woke up in the middle of her apartment being robbed she and the burglar struggled and he killed her and they actually found dark hairs clutched in her hand so she obviously was fighting for her life now the police investigate they don't find any fingerprints and so they start looking of course at the people close to her and they manage to figure out that her fiance and other men that she had either presently or past had relationships with all of them alibi out and they're, they're pretty good alibis so it's pretty much, you know, they don't really have a whole lot to go on here. And it's just two months after the murder, they're like, well, we'll keep looking. But it's really vague as to what they're actually going to do. It's, we'll keep looking. We, we don't know what for. Yes. Um, George has an idea about a giant invisible rabbit. We're, <laughs> no. George, George isn't dealing with a divorce well. 
So Josephine was buried with deceased her deceased husband, Herbert Ross, at Irving Park Cemetery in Chicago. Both of her parents were buried in that cemetery, although her mother wouldn't join her for another 25 years. So that was 25 years that her mother had to live knowing that her daughter was, was horribly murdered this way. All right, so now let's talk about Frances Brown. About six months have passed. It is December 1945. And Frances is 33, and she lives only four blocks from the site of the Ross murder. It's about it's about 0.6 miles, so it's not not a far distance. Now, Frances Brown came from Richmond, Indiana. She was born in 1912. She had one younger sister. Interestingly, her mother was the seventh great-granddaughter of one of the Mayflower passengers, Edward wow. Doty. Yes. Wow. He, uh, Edward Doty also signed the Mayflower Compact, and other notable descendants of his include uh, outlaw Sile or Silas Doty, who we might have to do an episode on sometime, and uh, Calvin Coolidge, president. Huh. He's the one yeah. I always forget it was president. <laughs> I forget that lots of them are presidents. I have a hard time keeping them all straight in my head. It's like me and geography, which I don't know why I love maps so much. I'm so bad at geography. Every Everybody, everybody like Calvin Coolidge, the first thing I think of is pants. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, in 1931, Frances Brown's father died. She was 19 at the time. And then in 1934... She came to Chicago. She went to business school. She got a job at the A.B. Dick Company. <laughs> yeah, I knew that was coming. Uh, this is a company in Chicago that manufactured copy machines and office supplies. And she worked there as a stenographer. And then World War II comes around and she decides to do her patriotic duty. And she joins the WAVES, which is the Women Accepted for Volunteer Emergency Service. She worked as a telegrapher or telegrapher. I don't know how we want to say that, but... Telegrapher sounds fancier. I say we go That's, with that. I like it. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. Telegrapher. She worked as a telegrapher. So the WAVES were established. It was a branch of the U.S. Naval Reserves, was established in 1942. Women could be commissioned officers, uh, and they could also be uh, entered in at the en enlisted level. And the purpose of this was that so that Men in the Navy and Naval Reserves on shore duty could go on sea duty, and then the women would take their place. So the requirements for this, for officer school, you had to be between ages 20 and 49, have a college degree, or two years of college plus two years of professional experience. And officers, it, it, it's pretty amazing what they could get training in. They could specialize in communications, supply, Japanese, meteorology, aviation ordinance, air navigation, and engineering. So you could really, really learn some important shit. I wonder what Japanese they taught people during World War II. Oh, wait, I know. <laughs> now, for en enlisted members, the requirements were 20 to 35 age, and you had to have a high school diploma or a business school diploma or equivalent experience. And at the peak of the waves, they had over 86,000 members. Oh, yeah. It was. Here's the thing. Like, I, I forget that there are people nowadays who don't know that the waves existed. So mm -hmm. it was it was 
it was kind of its own branch of the military. It, I mean, back in those days, you didn't have an air force. It was the army air force. So the waves, the waves were, I feel like were, were like just a gnat's hair away from becoming its own branch of the military. An all female soldier group with just tight uniforms and fishnet stockings. And I can have my dreams. Shut up. You can have your dreams, but I did see, and we can we can put this up on the social media. I did see a really cool uh, conceptual drawing of their summer uniforms, and it is just so very delightfully forties. Like I just I loved it. So, and so Frances Brown was dishon. Nope, sorry, honorably discharged. She was honorably discharged. You Everything did, was fine. You did great <laughs> in the military, but you're a woman. Dishonorable. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> just the way it is. You're only allowed honorable discharges if it's a penis, because exactly. how are you supposed to even discharge anything without a weapon? You know what I mean. Get out of here, you woman. <laughs> she was honorably discharged in August 1945, and she returned to her job at AB Dick. She got a nice little apartment on the sixth floor of Pinecrest, which was an apartment building on Pine Grove Avenue. And lived there with a roommate, Viola Butler. And you can actually, I was able to spot the building on Google Street View. It is still there today. And I, I have to think that it's the same building. Because it definitely doesn't feel particularly modern like it was built in the past 80 years or so. So I feel like it's got to be the same building. And she lived about, about seven or eight miles from her work. So on Sunday, December 9th, Frances gets home around 9.30 p.m., and now she's going to be home alone. Her roommate was out and was going to be out for the whole night. And so when Francis gets in, the desk clerk is like, hey, there was a guy here asking about you earlier. And, uh, you know, I told him you weren't around. So he, you know, just hoofed it out of here. And the clerk later said that Francis didn't seem surprised. She didn't seem put off. She, it seemed his idea was she seemed to be expecting this man to come by. Francis takes the elevator up to her apartment and basically had a normal night. She got a shower. She put out her clothes for the next day. I got to admire people who do that. I mean, granted, right now it's it's my my day pajamas and my night pajamas. But still, like I, I almost never do that. I might think in my head if I have something going on the next day. I might kind of like rotate my mental wardrobe and be like maybe i'll wear that and that but that's as far as it goes and yeah that's it i'm gonna be honest by friday if i'm lucky i won't be pulling clothes out of the hamper going it doesn't smell that bad <laughs> so francis does that she talks to her mom you know gives her a call talks to her mom about visiting holidays were coming relaxes a bit and then she goes to bed so the next morning, uh, Monday, December 10th, a maid in the building, Martha Engels, she heard a radio playing like unusually loudly from Francis's apartment. Yeah. She goes to take a look. The wounds this woman had, this was, th that's terrifying. Imagine you're that maid. and Oh yeah, that had to be really hard to see. And the thing was, is like, I don't know how she managed to get I, I would have left as soon because when she walks in, I'm I'm just imagining I don't know the layout of the apartment, but I'm just imagining that the living room is the first room you come upon, or at least you get to it before you get to the bedroom. And in now, according to later details, there was a message scrawled on the wall in lipstick 
for heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. And that would be the point where I would turn around and call the police. Yeah. I would leave and call the police. You don't know if he's still there. You don't know what you're going to find that's going to traumatize you for life. But she ended up going in and she goes to the bedroom. The, The bed is empty, but it's also bloody. And it's also, uh, there's a trail of blood that she follows to the bathroom. This is where Frances is draped over the edge of the tub. She is nude. She had been shot two times, in the, once in the head, once in the arm, and stabbed twice in the neck with an eight-inch bread knife, which was found still in her neck. And it seems like it went, like, all the way through. And to this day, police do not know what she said to deserve it. <laughs> oh, Scott, Jesus Christ. It must have been bad. <laughs> oh my God. Nothing. Literally, absolutely nothing. Her pajamas are on the bathroom floor and they're like blood stained, they're ripped. Someone had wrapped her head in towels, and it looks like the reason she was in the bathroom was because the killer had taken there to try to wash her body. So given the amount of blood in the bed, the murder probably happened there, and then they took her into the bathroom to try to wash her up. Which, again, it feels like, first of all, with that much blood that you would get from that kind of a wound, I don't imagine that even the most delusional person could have a hope of cleaning up all the blood. And anyhow, there's still going to be a murdered woman there, which pretty much gives away that a murder happened. The blood is is just, it's not really going to give anybody any direction one way or the other. So it seems like- feeling, Do you get the feeling like the killer's kind of afraid of blood? If I, but see, okay, so I don't like blood myself. So if I see blood, I turn my head. I don't look at it. In order to clean something, you have to look at it. So if, if you're afraid of something or if you don't like it, you, you, you go away. You try to get distance between it. You don't generally, I don't think, try to clean it up. It feels to me like this is remorseful, like trying to... To, in, in absolute vain to fix something that you did. And and that's very possible, but like I immediately went to after he kills them, I don't know why, but I was like, he's masturbating over them and then he cleans them up to get all that off. I mean, that's certainly a possibility. Uh, there's nothing in, in either of the murder reports that they, they found any trace of that, which... Yeah, a dishonorable discharge? But oh god, not the episode subtitle. I will not give you that satisfaction for that joke, Scott. That's okay. <laughs> so plenty of time I mean, left. Okay, so you've got a horrible, bloody mess from a murder. Probably arterial blood, lots of it, and then thinking that you could get rid of the evidence of semen. It just—it seems like it's just gonna. This is super gross, but it's just going to mix in with everything. I don't know. It just doesn't feel maybe. I mean, it's certainly he could he could have had that thought. I'm not dismissing it out of hand. But the, the thing is, is that they don't seem to be uh, there's no evidence of rape here. So at least there's that. Uh, it, it, so that kind of takes away at least some possibility of it being sexually motivated. It's also 
her head is wrapped in towels. So there's another similarity to uh, Josephine's murder that they, they, you know, her, she had the, the dress wrapped around her neck, possibly around her head. And this is towels in this case. So it does seem like, okay, so you guys have heard of murders where the murderer covers the victim's face afterwards because they have remorse. Generally it was, it's, it's, it's a personal thing. It's somebody that they know and they don't want to look at it and covering them up gives them that kind of psychological ability to at least for a, a few minutes, pretend that it didn't happen. It feels a little similar, doesn't it? Mm. it? It could be. Yeah, it could be like where they were having like, a, a mental break when they did it and then they kind of came back to themselves a little bit and tried to undo it. This this actually felt similar to another case we had. And at first Christy's gonna go, no, but <laughs> bear with me here, Christy. I'll uh, hear it out. Four days after the murder, the Chicago police announced they they thought the killer and they had some reasons, they thought the killer might be a woman. Whenever I saw that this reminded me, even though the other case, there was no murders, probably by pure luck, this reminded me a lot of the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. Okay, connect them for me. Okay, so it's, it's the 1940s. Um, it is in Illinois. You have someone trying to get into the house or getting into the house, and then everybody's assuming it's a man, but a lot of people think and have reason to believe that it was a woman that did it. Those four things, I mean, that is, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of a lot. I'm not saying that the Mad Gaster of Mattoon was the lipstick killer. I'm just saying it's kind of odd that there's like a lot of things happening at the same, in the same vein here. Yeah, it, it also seemed like their their motivation for thinking that uh, it might be a woman was there were there were two different reasons. One was naturally the lipstick. They think, well, men aren't going to gravitate towards lipstick to write a message on the wall. And although her purse, the contents of her purse were empty, so that might have been something that the murderer just found while they were emptying out her purse. And secondly, because of the phrasing in the message for heaven's sake, was considered more ladylike phrasing. So they thought maybe it was a ladylike murderer. And you know what? Like, I could get on board with this being a lady. I really could. Like, maybe I, it was done out of jealousy. I mean, sure, jealousy is a, is a, is a powerful motivator. I, I don't think it is simply because it seems like they saw somebody. Um, so, okay, so first of all, the police find... They do find one bloody fingerprint on the door jam of the bedroom. And they think that he came up the fire escape and then went into the window and also left that way too. And, but the thing is, is that it probably happened around 2.30 a.m. Although a neighbor heard gunshots around 4 a.m. or what they thought was gunshots. And the night clerk around that time saw a guy come down the elevator who he seemed pretty nervous. He was fumbling with the doors. He was 140 pounds, 35 to 40 years old, the night clerk said. So there at least was a man seen who could be suspicious. But again, it's one of those. When you look back when some event has happened, things that you might not have seemed suspicious at the time, all of a sudden you see them in a different light. So it might be like, oh, yeah, that guy was fumbling with the doors. Well, also, maybe he was drunk. Yeah. Especially at so. that hour. 
But yeah, I don't I don't necessarily buy that it was a woman that did it just because of the the real shoddiness of their reasons. Oh, well, they use lipstick. Well, if that's, if that's the first thing you fi- you find when you go through her her drawer, you know, her her purse. And second of all, it's that's a great thing for writing on the wall. What else are you going to use? Like if you use like a ball, a ballpoint pen or something, maybe a marker, but a lipstick's going to be good for that. So I don't know. Um, but there was actually a confession. A butcher named George Caraboni had been looked at for a bunch of murders in Cleveland that were uh, involved beheadings and dismemberments. But despite the fact that he confessed, the cops were like, eh, your story's too inconsistent. So, you know, get, get the hell out. And I mean, I do think that those those murders don't seem connected enough yet there those are beheadings and dismemberments this is it's extreme but it's still not that extreme it could become that extreme but this feels like two different murderers operating on two different levels i don't know if i'm comfortable with you describing the murderers with the same word that they use to advertise mountain dew well, I think different words can have different connotations in in some, you know, disparate contexts, like you know, Mountain Dew versus murder podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Mountain, Mountain Dew is not going to sponsor us anytime soon, are they? <laughs> That's a shame because I'm drinking right now a diet major melon, and it is the best thing I've ever put in my mouth. And I've I, I, dated three porn stars. We can, I can just imagine the transition from the episode to the ad. Uh, these murders weren't that extreme, but you know what's really extreme? Mountain Dew Major Melon. That's yeah. extreme. Oh, sure. I'm, I'm drinking Major Melon Zero. A lot of you see that as a fail, but that way I get to be hopped up on caffeine while not having empty calories. Now, back to the actual content of the episode not our fake ad that scott just read <laughs> i should specify that was fake uh we have no relationship with mountain dew unless mountain dew would like to sponsor us then i'd I mean, like to be paid in sodas oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com <laughs> so francis was buried in earlham cemetery back at home in indiana and that would be where a lot of her family was buried as well then we get to the most utterly horrific and tragic yet. I mean, it's already been uh, tra- horrific and tragic, but you can't deny that there definitely seems to be an escalation here and it's severe. This is Suzanne Degnan. Now, this happens in a neighborhood about 2.9 miles north of where Francis was murdered. It's in the Edgewater district. It's a middle-class kind of neighborhood. It's We're not in necessarily too many it's not as densely populated with apartment buildings as the other murders happened. There's some, but this is a, a large brick house that is described by the newspapers as set well back from the street and surrounded by shrubbery. So the Degnan family uh, consists of Jim Degnan, 38, Helen, 35, and they had two daughters, Betty, 10, and Suzanne was just six. Suzanne was called pretty, blue-eyed, and golden-haired. Now, the family actually hadn't lived in Chicago for very long at all. They th- This all happens in early January, and they had just moved from Baltimore the previous summer. And they actually shared this, this house with another family, the Flynns. Louis Flynn owned the house. He was an attorney. And basically... 
the when the Degnans couldn't find a place to live when they first came to town, Mrs. Flynn offered them the first floor. So you had the Degnans living on the first floor of this big brick house and the Flynn's living on the second. So first floor, small family, and they also had two boxers, uh, the dogs, not the athletes. <laughs> the athletes might have come in handy. Um and then uh, upstairs is the Flynn's. Now it was Mr. and Mrs. Flynn and also their uh, daughter and her husband, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Thomas Keegan, because God forbid a woman should have a name. And, and the uh, the family maid as well lived up there. So plenty of people in this house. Jim Degnan uh, was an executive with the Office of Price Administration, which was a, a government bureau. He made $7,500 a year, which was... $100,000 in today's money, but it didn't seem to be going very far. I think maybe, I don't know, maybe Chicago was a more expensive city than where he'd come from, and he didn't really shift his salary for the for the adjustment. I mean, and, Chicago, uh, I think, has, has for a long time been a pretty expensive city to live in. God, I hate Chicago. <laughs> I really do. I've been to Chicago quite a few times. And it never gets better. I mean, you hate Chicago, but we're in Johnstown. <laughs> and yet I still hate Chicago. I know. It's amazing, <laughs> really. So the family uh, spent Sunday, January 6th together. And the, the very next day would be the end of Christmas break. The girls would start back up at Sacred Heart Academy, which was just three blocks north of the house. That night, they went to bed. They, had, they each had their own bedroom. Around 12.30 a.m., Suzanne woke up uh, to go to the bathroom, and her parents saw her then. Sometime during the night, around 1.30 or so, there's a bit of a disturbance in the house. The Flynn's maid heard some commotion downstairs. She heard a little bit of movement. She heard the dogs bark in response, and then heard Suzanne say, I'm sleepy, in like a pleading voice, which is painful. That physically pains me. Around that time, though, the Keegans, so the the adult uh, daughter and and her husband, uh, daughter of the Flynns, they came home and pulled into the garage, and they heard the dogs as well, as did Mr. Dagnan. But everybody pretty much seemed to think that it was just the dogs reacting to the Keegans returning home. Nobody had any suspicions at that point. So that particular event happening when possibly the kidnapping that was going on was also happening may have been really lucky for the kidnapper because it it disguised it sort of gave a diversion so that nobody actually thought something could be wrong and went to investigate around 7 30 a.m the next day the family wakes up jim degnan goes to wake up suzanne now, he finds that her door is closed, which is odd. That's not something she does. She's actually uh, afraid of the dark. And she is missing. The window is open all the way, which it's January. And uh, the, now the windows of the house had been unlocked. She had been wearing, when she was put to bed, she'd been wearing blue pajamas. Uh, but despite it being very, very cold out, I mean, it's Chicago in January, Nothing had been taken that would warm her up. No heavier items of clothing, none of the bed clothes. 
So the family looks everywhere in their part of the house. And then when they don't find anything, they notify the Flynn's and they have the Flynn's look in their part of the house and they also find nothing. They do find a note in Suzanne's bedroom. It says, get $20,000 ready and wait for word. Do not notify FBI or police bills in fives and tens. Burn this for her safety. I, I'm no. reading that as safety. Well, there's a lot of issues with spelling in this. <laughs> ready is R-E-D-D-Y. Wait has an E on the end of it. Uh, so yeah, there's, there's definitely, it's, 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 I wanted to get my red pen out hardcore. <laughs> this was written in pencil on oil smeared, like dirty smeared paper. Around 10 a.m., a call comes in to the Flynn household asking, is Suzanne there? They claim to be the kidnapper. And they uh, also, that this person delivers the same ransom demand that had been on the note in the bedroom. And Dagnan says, I have no money and I know of no reason why I should be a target of a kidnapping for ransom. Someone may think I have a lot of money, but I haven't. And I have no way of getting money. All I can ask is that the girl be returned unharmed. And the reason it seems that they called the Flynn's is because the Degnan's number was actually private and wasn't listed in the directory. So they they seem to know at least who lived there. Maybe there were names on the, the front of the house or even just grabbing some mail and looking at it or, you know, something like that. But they, they seem to have have some knowledge of the residents of the house in order to find the phone number, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if they didn't think that Suzanne was a Degnan, you know what I mean? Like if they didn't realize that that it was a second family, they thought it was all mm. one family. That is an excellent point. Yeah. If they thought, well, the Flynn's are, you know, attorneys or at least, you know, Mr. Flynn is an attorney. So they would think, you know, cha-ching and kidnapping Suzanne. So yeah, it could go either way. I think that, that really is, is a 50, 50 split, whether they were mistaken or whether it was just the, the closest number they had that they could find one way or the other. Yeah, now, go either way. Yeah, yeah, it's curious. The Degnans did, in fact, they ignored the, the note and they got the police involved. Detective Chief Walter Storms, uh, also six squads of police and the FBI as well came in. So no shortage of manpower on this case. And now they found around the house behind it, they found a seven foot ladder that had been stolen from elsewhere and brought to the house. And when they leaned it up, it would go right to Suzanne's window. Another call came in. This one, it was anonymous and it said, Hey, you should check out the sewers. And so the police do, they find a sewer manhole cover thing that looks out of whack. And so they lift that up and in the sewer, they find a head. It is Suzanne's. She even still has the ribbons in her hair. That's, this is, that's the part that got me. I actually teared up a little bit saying that. That, uh, that got me. I know. Yeah, that's, that's rough. That's, that's, it, it compounds, that's tiny details like that that can compound a tragedy like tenfold somehow. Yeah. Yeah, right? It, it shouldn't just be it should just be the head and everything else is inconsequential. But the fact that the ribbons are still in the hair, it broke my fucking heart. Yeah, because there's something so 
young and innocent and pure about that. Yeah. And then to have it contrasted with such a foul, horrifying thing happening to a small child, it just makes it, it just serves to highlight her, her youth and innocence and vulnerability. Yeah. So you're, you're absolutely right about that, Scott. And now this was about a half mile South of the Degnan and Flynn house that they find this. And then throughout the evening, they start looking around the other sewers and they find other parts of her, everything except for the, the arms and the legs. And so they're looking to figure out where this happened and they discover evidence of a probable dismemberment at an apartment building, not far at all from where the remains were found. And it's in the basement. And uh, now this was, this was rough. The coroner said that an attempt had been made to criminally assault a child before killing her. Just mm. keeps getting worse, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm. And, just to illustrate my point, her first grade classmates attended her funeral services, uh, as did detectives who were waiting. They were they were checking around to see if anybody you know suspicious came to the funeral. That that whole idea that sometimes killers will go and actually attend the funeral um, for various reasons, whether it be remorse or whether it be kind of sticking it to the family without letting them know, like secretly it's some sort of sick delight in watching them mourn because of your actions. Or in a way also possibly like returning to the scene of the crime or, you know, checking out to see if you hear any rumors, if, if, if the, you know, cops are hot on your trail, maybe people might know about it and you might overhear it. Who knows? There's lots of different reasons. They're generally all either stupid or sick. So Yeah. Now, this causes naturally a huge uproar and just fear spreads throughout the community. People actually started locking their doors, which I find hugely ironic since at no point has this kidnapper likely used a door in or out of a house. <laughs> I, I actually heard it referred to. I, I listened to a few podcasts about this just to kind of get myself into the headspace. I actually heard it referred to more than once as the night Chicago started to lock its doors. Yeah, which, if anything, yes, okay, good, lock your doors. Also, windows would be good. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I'm not windows blaming anybody. I'm, I'm not blaming any of the people who have been victimized here. I'm talking about the people who are reacting to it by locking their doors. Yes, that's good. That's a good first step. Now, the second step is to go and lock all the windows. Do that, too. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's it's pretty pretty rough in the community. And now the police, they do a little profile of the murderer and they come up with the the conclusion that it was probably either a butcher or a doctor with surgical knowledge. And then we get some suspects here. This is we get sort of a, a train of suspects coming down the line. So there was one what the newspaper referred to. This is not my words quote, crippled dentist, end quote, uh, also had formerly uh, been an inmate at the state hospital. Why is that Robert... funny to me? Crippled dentist. I don't know. <laughs> it sounds like something I'd yell out late at night whenever I stub my toe. Crippled dentist. <laughs> I feel like we should start doing that. I think, I think we need to. <laughs> we might just. This was Robert Grotzinger. He was 46. And now he worked for the mother of an ex-serviceman 
Francis Cyril Perry, 22. Both of them were sex offenders. They were both brought in and interrogated, but it was found that they had alibis that excluded them. So they were ruled out. Then uh, two janitors were also heavily questioned and more. Uh, One of them was from the apartment building where the murder and dismemberment were said to have happened and also his wife and then another neighborhood janitor. So the first janitor was Hector Verberg. He was a Belgian immigrant, 65. He was a father of six, grandfather of more than that. Uh, He was released 48 hours after being taken into custody. And when he was released, he looked like he was absolutely just right about to collapse. And he said, quote, they handcuffed me and hung me up. I can't lift my arms. They are so sore. They blindfolded me. I have had no food or sleep for two days. And then the cops are like, ah, oh, well, we tried to give him food. And he said, no, uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say I, I, I believe Verberg. <laughs> Especially in light of some of the stuff that comes after this. Well, and- I do too. But there was another part of Verberg's quote, which I found to be very interesting. And that is, I know eats. I go to the hospital. Oh, I am so sick anymore. And I would have confessed to anything. That is fascinating. Why didn't I see that part of the quote? Because, yeah, that seems important in light of what happened. Yes. In light of what happens. Absolutely. So I think the cops took that and ran. Hmm. Yeah, really. You know what? If we torture somebody, eventually they'll they'll say anything. I think we can clear off a lot of cases. What do you know? And the, the Chicago police sergeant actually was really hung up on Verberg being... The murderer, he flat out said, he's the man who did it. But they gave Berberg a lie detector test and eventually let him go because they, they couldn't come up with enough evidence to, to charge him. But still, the Chicago police sergeant told the papers that it was him. Can't charge him, but you can go around, you know, tarnishing the man's name. Okay. All right. Great. Sure. Nice. Sorry. Getting, getting bitter. No, um, no, no. Every, you have every right to. There is a whole lot of bitter in this case. There really is. Yeah, lots of bitter to come. So they start looking at a drifter named Richard Russell Thomas. He was 42. He it was actually, when they, when they found him, he was in jail in Arizona, but he had been in Chicago at the time of the, the Degnan murder. And he was in jail for molesting his 13-year-old daughter and had also done the same to one of his other children as well. He also had committed some domestic violence against his wife. Just really a horrible person. And he'd also been in and out of jail for, for stuff like kidnapping, extortion. Also enjoyed himself some burglary from time to time. Looking pretty good for this. Especially when he confessed. And they compared his handwriting with the ransom note and they were like okay yeah i'm pretty sure that we're pretty sure he's the one because not only the handwriting seemed to match up but also the phrasing between they compared the ransom note phrasing and the phrasing in one of his letters attempting extortion and it was it was quite similar he recanted his confession and you know, they, they still are looking at him for a little while because there's there's so many different things possibly connecting him. Like, for instance, 
Suzanne Dagnan's arms were found across the street from a business that Russell was, or sorry, Thomas was a regular at. He also uh, really enjoyed dressing up as a doctor and stealing surgical supplies. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. There's something fucking hilarious about that. <laughs> like even a doctor, even a doctor, it's probably be tough for a regular doctor to steal surgical supplies, but your standard fake doctor. And yeah. that, there's all sorts of hijinks that couldn't sue where it's like, you're just, you know, you're dressed up like a doctor. You go into the local hospital and you're just going to steal, oh, a scalpel, a hemostat, maybe some, maybe some stitching, some needles. And you go in there and they're oh my God, doctor, we need you. There's been a bus accident. I, I don't, uh, oh, geez. <laughs> and just like walking through this thing and all of a sudden you're neck deep in gore. Oh, there's a lot of comedy there. There's a lot of comedy there. He now, yeah, they 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 were really looking at him for a while, and, and during this time, they also questioned and released thousands of people because they would bring someone in, then they would compare the their fingerprints to the, you know, what they had found, and if it didn't match, then they were pretty much out. And then the police find somebody else that they start looking at, and they start looking at very very closely, and this is William. Scott, you listen to podcasts about this. Is it Hirons? Herons? I didn't. Uh, look there's up the actually, didn't there's actually two. Um, there was, it was, uh, I believe. God, I wish I, I guess, I wish I would have wrote this down. But it, it was a thing where there was a, there was a, uh, a, a reporter who was interviewing him later on in his life, who became interested and started to believe. No, this is not a guilty man. This is probably an innocent man. Spoilers. Um, but it, it was a thing where like everybody in the media was calling him calling him one way, like like Herons. And then he, he sits down and goes, Hi, I'm William Hirons. And it went, Oh, is that the way you pronounced your name? Because the rest of the world isn't pronouncing your name like that. He goes, Yeah. So like they didn't even bother to get the pronunciation of his name right. Much like I hadn't. <laughs> I guess I'm going to go with Hirons. It feels right. Let's do I'm that. Right. If, if we get it wrong, what does it matter? Apparently, yes. This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. Sometimes you find something you really love doing, like podcasting. Podcorn is here to help podcasters by connecting them to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities like host-read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and so much more. Podcasters like us can reach out to brands looking to sponsor an episode, and it's so incredibly easy. That's right. You can just write or record a proposal, send it off, and wait for that magical, you're hired message. Another great thing is that it's not just for the big guns. Smaller shows like ours can connect with brands through Podcorn too. So get paid to do what you love with Podcorn. Check out the link in our show notes to start browsing sponsorships today. This episode is sponsored by Best Fiends. If you listen to our show regularly, then it should come as no surprise that 
we've been playing a lot of Best Fiends. Yes, we have. There's a reason everyone is talking about Best Fiends, and it's because it's fun and bright and colorful. And there are new challenges and events every month, not to mention thousands of levels to play. Speaking of levels, I know you've been waiting with bated breath, so let's get to it. It's level check time. I am at level 875. I am at 1542. And I am at 2758. Really? Whoa. Really? Really? <laughs> really? Wow. So you could you could be spending your time by engaging your brain with fun puzzles and collect tons of cute characters. Trust me, with over 100 million downloads, this five-star rated mobile puzzle game is a must-play. Download Best Fiends free on the Apple App Store or Google Play. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. William Hirons was born in 1928. He grew up in the city of Chicago. He enjoyed drawing. He also uh, had an affinity for science and science fiction stories. He lived on Grace Street, just three blocks from the Pine Grove apartment where uh, Josephine Ross lived. Now, he also started to get a thing for stealing. Around age 12, he committed his first theft. He was working as a grocery delivery boy, and in an interaction with a customer, he accidentally gave them too much change. So he's like, how do I fix this? Oh, look, the door's open. There's the purse. There's a, I'll just reach in and grab a dollar bill and be off on my way. And that really gave him the sticky finger bug. It, it seemed to be that he did this out of the, the enjoyment or the rush or something, Later, he would say it was because of poverty, but he's, he's stealing these things that aren't really going to help you too much with the poverty. Radios and guns. He really liked guns. Okay, yeah, you can sell those for, for a, a, little, a little haul. But also, handkerchiefs? Men's boxer shorts? I mean, I, when you're stealing other people's underwear, I don't think it's out of poverty. Unless you're really, really poverty-stricken and your underwear are ragged, which, okay. But it just seems like he was just stealing to stealing. He's become a kleptomaniac. He, yes. he did it once. Uh, some genetic switch in his brain went, hey, that gave you a big old boner, didn't it? Do it, some, do it again. Do it again. Yeah, absolutely. And he would, he would break into homes uh, rather than stores. And Pine Grove Avenue, where, where, the, uh, where Jack, Josephine Ross lived, was one of his stomping grounds. He broke into a basement locker at an apartment in 1942. He was 13 at the time, and that was his first arrest. He ended up with a year uh, at a semi-correctional school in Indiana, and he actually did really well in the school, but then when he came back, the pattern repeated again. He stole, he got busted, what went to another school. What the fuck is a semi-correctional school? <laughs> eh, close enough. I guess it's 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 juvie light. <laughs> I guess I don't know, but yeah, I have that in quotes just because <laughs> I was like, that's not my phrasing. And but yeah, every time he would end up in these schools, he would do pretty well, and he ended up getting into the University of Chicago at age sixteen. They had this special program they were trying out for for younger gifted students, and he managed to get into that. So he was pretty smart. Yeah, he's not a dummy. This is this is an intelligent man. 
Absolutely. Yeah. He was planning on becoming an electrical engineer. He went into the Bachelor of Science track in order to uh, accomplish this. He was he was really living what I think is a pretty interesting and urbane life. He was taking advanced courses at the university. He was learning all kinds of new stuff. He liked chess and ballroom dancing. He was starting a, a music collection. He really liked some classical stuff. This he's like a mini Fraser Crane. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. I'm going to go that. more of a sideshow Bob because of the prison. Oh. Well, yeah, okay. Maybe, maybe. I guess Kelsey Grammer is both, so, right? Why Kelsey Grammer voices, voices sideshow Bob, so that works. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. And, yeah, he had quite a few friends. He had some girlfriends. And for a little while, he seemed to be doing well enough in his life that he wasn't stealing. But then Christmas 1945 comes around and it seems like maybe I'm just guessing, but the holiday break, he, you know, after all the intensity of a semester and all these courses and everything, he had this stretch of time, was bored, was looking for a rush and he started stealing again. And then the following summer, summer of 1946 was when he ramped things up. He had $1,000 in saving bond, savings bonds that he was going to cash on June 26th. Of course, these were saving bonds that he had managed to get. They, they were ill-gotten gains, shall we say. And it was also a memorable day for the family. His uncle had come home from the war, uh, and the family was going to have a party. But Hirons, who was 17 at this point, he has these, you know, $1,000 in savings bonds that he's going to cash. And he's like, well, I'm going to be walking around with 1000 so I should have some firepower on me if I'm going to be carrying that. So he grabs a revolver. Uh, but by the time he gets to the post office where he was going to exchange the savings bonds for cash, it was closed. The thing was, he had a date that night. He needed money for the date. So he's like, well, I know what to do. I'll just do the things. I, I, I'll just go and steal from people's apartments. Sell so the gun. Goes. Sell the gun, buddy. <laughs> You're smart. I mean, you you have to find a customer first. So are you just going to walk up to everybody you see on the street and be like, you need a gun? You need it, a gun? You need, it, need a gun? It's absolutely Chicago. In Chicago to this day, they, they'll check you for knives, bombs, guns whenever you go to a public school. And if you don't have any, they'll give you some. <laughs> but you know what? He never sold any of the stuff that he stole. He would steal things that were useless and then just keep them. Yeah, he had hordes of all these things that he stole, actually, that they found later. Like he had some in a storage unit type or storage locker in addition to at his home. So it, was, it wasn't, I don't think he really sold much of anything. He, I guess he did sell some because that's how he got the $1,000 in savings bonds with the proceeds from some of the stuff that he, he sold. So we can't say he didn't sell anything, but he certainly well, kept a ton of stuff that would have been, would have helped Mount Morphe sold it. Honestly, though, that might have been from like literally the cash that he stole. Because, I mean, he would steal things like men's undershorts sometimes. Like, there was no rhyme or reason. It was just the excitement, the thrill of it. But if you're stealing cash, why bother converting it into savings bonds and then... He could have just stolen the savings bonds. <laughs> but it did say that the savings bonds had been purchased with money from his thievery. So it just seems like, like, but I guess he was 17. So, you know, maybe he was like, oh, I'll do my part for the war effort and I'll buy savings bonds with my money that I stole. So that's a possibility <laughs> as well. Yeah, There's something beautiful about that. 
Me using this stolen money to buy war bonds makes the money more my money. Right? And it goes to help our troops. Yeah. So he does go back to his old tricks. He was in an apartment building. A door was open. So he snatched a, a, a dollar bill from that apartment. But somebody spotted him. They summoned the police. And soon enough, we have a chase. Now, this was just a few blocks from the Degnan house, and it was only a little over five months after the murders. Of course, he has that gun that we mentioned earlier. Some shots are fired, but naturally there's a disagreement between him and the police as to whether he shot at all. He says he didn't. They say he did, but they were they missed, whatever. There is a struggle between him and the police. And the only, it seems like it's its kind of a stalemate until along comes an off-duty officer wearing his swim trunks because he had been hanging out at the beach. And I absolutely love this. He intervenes in the most cartoony manner possible, short of dialing up Acme for some dynamite. He grabs this stack of three flower pots and he stands like on a stairwell above or landing above Hirons and he just drops them one by one by one onto Hiron's head. That's, it's, that's beautiful. It's literally Looney Tunes. <laughs> literally. <laughs> so that knocks him out. They then take him to the hospital. There, while he's there, this this is oh boy, this is where the, the horrifying adventure begins. The adventure through hell. They take his prince. And there start to be murmurs that he's suspected of kidnapping and killing Suzanne Dagnan. Now, the print is a match to the one found, but it's not a 100% match. Here's the thing. On the fingerprint, there are different points that you can match up between two fingerprints. And the FBI standard was you needed 12 points to match up. Only nine in this case did. But the police still were like, well, that's enough. And so now... But it's not. (laughs) (laughs) It's not. No, it's not at all. The guys who created the system say it's not enough. Right? (laughs) And at some point, the police start making connections. Now, up until this point, it doesn't seem like they had officially connected the other two murders with the Degnan murder, but they start seeing, okay, we've got the, the two women, both of them stabbed in the neck, both of them with the clothes tied around their necks, probable entry through fire escapes. Then they look at the Degnan murder and they're like, okay, well, again, it's an entry through a window, even if it's using a ladder. And so they're like, okay, this is the lipstick killer. And it now starts to be made known to the press and therefore the entire city and the nation that he is the lipstick killer. Of course, now this gives them probable cause to search his property, and that's when they find all the shit he'd stolen. They didn't have a fucking warrant to do it, but they did it anyway. I mean, as we're about to see, there's not really much that's going to stop them from doing whatever the hell they want. Not anything at all. So It's almost like the police are as bad as the criminals. In this case, yes. Uh, that's so, changed. Yeah, right? What enlightened days we're living in. They have the handwriting on the messages from the killer. So they 
they basically keep on bringing in handwriting experts. They bring in one guy, and then that one guy looks at Hiren's handwriting that they had from a term paper he'd written, and then they look at the the other messages, the lipstick and the ransom note, and they're like, he's like, nah, uh-uh. And so they're like, okay, you go away. You're not helpful. Let's call in somebody else. So then they bring in the handwriting expert who had actually connected Bruno Richard Hauptmann to the Lindbergh baby kidnapping and murder through handwriting. And according to the police, this guy was like, yep, these are, these are a match. But later he told the paper that he didn't think that there was really a match. Um, and it's even thought that the lipstick message on the wall might have been a reporter trying to like gin up a big scoop, you know, make things more dramatic, kind of like that idea that goes around in the Black Dahlia murder that, you know, that was one of the, the there's a famous female crime reporter in LA. And if, if I remember the story goes, and it's not verified at all, the story goes that she actually brought a Dahlia to the murder scene and dropped it there when nobody was looking in order to try to come up with a catchy nickname. But we're going to do the Black Dahlia sometime this year, so... We'll get into that then, but it's the same idea. And that's why I said when the maid came uh, to the, that, that's the thing. When the maid came and found Francis Brown, I don't, I don't think that the lipstick message was on the wall at that point because for the maid to then actually continue through the house is absolutely bonkers. Unbelievable. After seeing that message, Okay, if you see an apartment ransacked, yeah, you're concerned, but you might still consider it. You come in, you see an apartment ransacked, and you see that message on the wall, again, hightail it the hell out, call the cops. So First, first thing why, I'm doing whenever I see a message on a wall like that, I'm checking for punctuation, because if he, if he hasn't put a period down, he may be looking for another tube of lipstick to finish this paragraph. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, so in my mind, I think that's pretty strong evidence that the lipstick message wasn't there, but I would love to do some some digging and see if I could find. I didn't have a chance to with this, and it's something that really only came to me as we were talking about it, but I would love to do some digging and find if there's actually a statement from the maid about the lipstick message or not, because she would have been the first person on the scene. And then, you know, as soon as the, the cops were there, some of the reporters, there's even the possibility, hell, that the reporters were there before the cops in these cases. So, yeah, it just seems like I feel like there's a strong possibility. I'm not saying 100 percent, but I feel like there's a strong possibility that that lipstick message wasn't even from the murderer. Agreed. Agreed. So back to Hirons. He is in the hospital for days and that's when the press is notified that there's a match with the prince and they start to lose it. And so the pressure is now on the police to get a confession. And that's just no goddamn excuse. <laughs> I don't care how much pressure yeah. is on you. It's no excuse for what comes. Here are the methods by which they attempted to extract a confession. Day after day after day of badgering him questioning you know how did you kill her how did you kill her and then giving him all the gruesome details and then badgering him some more just basically soaking him in these horrifying details of the murder a male nurse was brought in to pour ether on his genitals which uh burns i believe i had to pay 15 dollars to have somebody do that to me a couple years ago Uh, did you pay $15 to have a detective punch your genitals? Because that happened for free for Hirons. Lucky guy. 30 Well, you know, inflation being what it is. Yeah. 
uh, a detective would, all the detectives, they would pinch him, poke him, and then they would also go a little more hardcore. They would punch him. They would wail on him. They kept him without food. They wouldn't let him sleep. And so they're not getting much luck. So they're like, okay, well, we really need to ramp it up. But instead of going slowly and ramping it up, why don't we dial it from like 25 to 500 as far as horrifying is concerned? They gave him a spinal tap without any anesthetic. I don't think cops should be allowed to give spinal taps. Well, they Silly had doctors me. do it. They had doctors do it. But it, I'm pretty sure that it was the doctors doing it under the cops' orders, not for any medical reason. Yeah, and now correct me if I'm wrong here, but wasn't he still a minor when this was going on? 17. Mm-hmm. So he was yep. still a minor. They would not let his parents see him. They would not let him talk to his parents or have any sort of representation of any sort Right. Um, and, and I was actually talking about this earlier. And I was like, as a parent of a 17 year old, I can promise you if my child was taken by the police, I would bomb the building to get her out. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't I don't blame his parents because maybe they, they didn't really probably know what was going on. And maybe they had more faith in the police than than we do. But. But damn, yeah, they the police certainly would not have been able to get away with this if his parents had known what was going on and if his parents had been there. So they're obviously deliberately keeping this minor from his parents and any sort of representation. And then even the spinal tap is not enough, apparently, because afterwards, instead of letting him rest, they tossed him into a police car and took him for a nice bumpy ride to the station, which he said was just unbelievably painful. There they administered a lie detector test, which we all know they're they're pretty much bullshit. I mean, in my mind, if they can't, if it's, I I don't know for sure if it was ruled in, inadmissible in court at this point in time. I can't remember. I don't. I feel like it was maybe later that that happened. But even today, in my mind, if it's not admissible in court, then it's it's not trustworthy enough to be used in investigation to either confirm or deny that somebody is guilty. That's just my personal thought, but anything that you can defeat just by clenching your butthole together, that's no, you can't use that. Yeah. Yeah. So they, and especially when he's, he's in pain, they gave him a lie detector and test when he was in extreme pain was like on the verge of collapse, hadn't been eating or sleeping and had been tortured for days. Yeah. A lot of your, you know, vital signs, they're going to be a little different than if you were in a semi calm state. If you were in a normal state, if you were just going to take a lie detector test without all the torture beforehand. Imagine that. Where's the fun in that? Yeah. Right? Now, they actually said, oh, well, this test, you know, the results are inconclusive. But the actual inventors of this specific machine that the police used on Hirons that day, they looked at the results and said, actually, no, they are not inconclusive. He's innocent. These results say he is innocent. So really different messages coming from different people here. Yeah, but that doesn't work with their rhetoric. So we're going to toss that out. It didn't work. <laughs> yeah, they have their own idea of what happened here. And anything that doesn't match up with it is just of no use to them. So after five days of torture, they decide, okay, well, let's try another bullshit thing truth serum they inject him with sodium pentothal good 
Lord. <laughs> right? It's just one bullshit thing after another here. I got an idea. Let's get the old gypsy woman in here to read the tea leaves. Mm -hmm. Shove a deck exactly. of tarot cards up his ass sideways. That'll tell him the truth. <laughs> and the thing about sodium pentothal is people who are injected with it, it can leave them susceptible to the power of suggestion, but it's, it seems to be the, the most powerful suggestions are what I'm, I'm calling pre-suggestions. Things people have said to you repeatedly over the previous days might come to the fore. So say maybe people telling you that you had murdered a small child for days might all of a sudden come into your head as the truth. Now, during this, they have him, uh, they interrogate him for three hours. Police said that he talked about his other personality, George, who was sort of like the hide to his Dr. Jekyll. So, you know, that, that whole two sides. So uh, Hirons is just a normal everyday guy who just likes to steal stuff. And George is his murderous alternate personality. But the thing is, there was maybe a transcript of this interrogation, but uh, no member of the public has ever seen it. It went missing. It went missing, mm -hmm. and that's that's if it ever even existed. Let's let's face it. <laughs> even the presence of the state attorney is in question here at this interrogation because he said, "No, no, I wasn't there," and literally everybody else who was present was like, "Yeah, you were." You were there. I saw you with my own eyes. We we talked about the weather while this guy was being brutally interrogated and talking about alternate personalities. Don't you remember? How could you forget that? I'm insulted. And now the doctor who gave him the injection said, yeah, he did come out with this alternate personality stuff, but he never said anything during this interrogation about murders. However, in July, indictments come down 23 burglary charges and even even just those just those 23 burglary charges were enough to put him away for life if sentences were run consecutively of robbery assault with intent to kill and three counts of murder and finally he's given lawyers but it doesn't matter worth a damn because even they think that he did it like that's the thing about defense attorneys. If they're going to actually be able to do their job, I think they have to close out that part of their brain that just looks at you and says, guilty. <laughs> you know, they have to close it off and just, if they're going to be effective, they have to believe in order, in order to do the work, they have to believe that there is at least a, a chance of reasonable doubt that this person is not guilty. Because if you believe that somebody is guilty, then why bother doing all that work? Just talk them into, um, oh, oh, gee, I don't know, doing a, a plea bargain that completely screws them over and, in exchange for a confession. And then, you you know, like it's less paperwork and less footwork and who cares? Yeah. Yeah. It's that's just it's a, so much simpler. I mean, it's it's the path of least resistance. Yes. Yes. And th that's just that example I just gave is totally random and is in no way what is about to happen here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anyhow, I have to pause to refill my beverage, so. I like those sound effects. Though. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> that's how we should start it. Let's talk about murder. That is so many other true crime podcasts. You have no idea. <laughs> I, I don't know why so many of them have to revolve around alcohol, but there you have it. But 
That's well, fine. If people want to do that, that's fine. And we certainly, Amber and I drink and Scott has his Mountain Dew. We, yes, that's during the podcast. But like, I think the, I think the historical bent is enough of enough of a thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. So his lawyers are essentially just trying to avoid a death sentence. They're trying to avoid him going to the chair because they think he did it. So they don't think a trial is worth it. There is a plea bargain discussed. Uh, he would get just one life sentence if he confessed to all three murders. Uh, but before they even released the information about that plea bargain, this incredibly unethical thing happens. A Chicago Tribune reporter basically just fictionalizes a confession and the paper publishes it. So everybody else, like, and, and it's, it's not like they're like, if he confessed, here's what he might say. No, they acted like it was true. They presented it as a fact. And all the other papers basically had to go along with it because, well, they didn't have to. They did not have to. They went along with it so that they could continue to sell papers as well. So that it wasn't just the Chicago Tribune getting all that sweet, sweet murder fan money. If you'd like to send us some sweet, sweet murder fan money, you can reach our PayPal using the email address oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. And please, in the subject line, put murder fan money. It's it's a cyclical thing. Murder fan money gets you more of these podcasts. <laughs> it's true, yes. I didn't even plan on doing that, but it just came to me and I was like, eh, why the hell not? Yeah. Why not it's sprinkle my right. bullshit throughout instead of saving it all for the end? <laughs> oh, okay, so yeah, so all the papers are are printing this confession like it is truth. And then the radio, it starts getting on the radio. Hirons hears about that, hears it in jail, and freaks out. He's like, I, what do you, what are, why are they saying I confessed? I didn't. I specifically didn't confess. And his lawyers are like, well, you should anyhow. And so he decides, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to confess. And basically they made his confession match the Chicago Tribune article by like steering him towards the details that they wanted and away from the ones that didn't match up. Which is a thing that, you know, not just lawyers, police do that when, when getting confessions sometimes. They'll, after they've really like hammered somebody with details for a couple of days, they'll sneak these details into your head so that you think that all of a sudden it's part of your memory because you're so like, like people being interrogated for like 18 hours straight or whatever. And it, in these tiny little bright white rooms. And so you start to think, maybe I did do that. And so you start parroting these details back to them. And then all of a sudden your confession matches up to the murder. I'm not saying it happens every time, but there are a, 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 a truly disturbing number of you, false confessions that are not on purpose. The human mind is so incredibly malleable. And I'm sure there's like a ton of people out there listening right now going like, yeah, not to me. It wouldn't. Yeah. Yeah, it would. Oh, yeah, it would. Absolutely. Yeah, it would. And a couple of days what... without sleep. Uh, back in 1990, 19, sorry, 1989, I went a few days without sleep. And I swear to God, a fucking Care Bear walked in, <laughs> rocked on its heels, looked at me and said, I think it's time for Betty by now. And I looked at it and I went, by God, I think you're right. Yeah, the human brain, uh, I've actually, every time my therapist and I talk about like the the ways that my brain decides to mess with me, I, I look at her and I go, my brain is stupid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she's like, 
Well, everybody's is, yes. But yeah, here's the ways that your brain in particular acts stupid. And so there's that, first of all. And second of all, that is why I get so furious. And this, I see it, it is pervasive throughout uh, any re recountings of true crime. I've, it's, it's so many different like podcasts and TV shows and books are guilty of it. Making it sound like somebody exercising their right to have an attorney present when they're questioned is a sign of guilt. No, that's protecting yourself, especially if you're innocent. I would think it would be more a sign that you're innocent, but they, they, it's become twisted in society that if you decide you want to have an attorney present, oh, you must be guilty. Absolutely not. No, no, and no. I, I just want an attorney present so they don't burn my genitals, I think is a good enough reason. Good, like, a, a very good reason, yes. And uh, yeah, there's, there's a reason that it is a right and for it to have become twisted so that it's a sign of guilt is absolute bullshit. No, you get an attorney in there the second that you go in for questioning. And I think it should, I really wish that it would become more standard, that that is just what people do when they interact with the cops in any sort of serious crime situation and not an outlier that means you have a guilty conscience or you're trying to hide something. Even some of my like true crime idols, I have... I think I once heard Keith Morrison like imply that somebody must have been guilty because they hired a lawyer. And I was like, son of a bitch, not you too, Keith. Damn it, Keith. We had it, so Keith. much hope for you. Oh, I still do. I still do. Uh, so, yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's just that one thing that really bugs me uh, when people do it. So I, I, I always encourage people, no, get a lawyer. Make it normal. So, yeah. But... The thing is, all right, back to the actual case, aside from my my, my true crime uh, pet peeves here. Yeah, they basically spend two weeks rehearsing. They have these all these sessions where they rehearse the details of the confession. It is very much a performance where he has to memorize his lines that come from this fictionalized version of what he might have confessed if, you know, the Chicago Tribune reporter had his way. And he has to repeat this as if this is the truth. It is so incredibly messed up. They do get an official confession. They, they try, at least. He, they're, they're in the offices. They're trying to get an official confession. And every question they ask, he stonewalls with, a, oh, well, I don't remember. or I don't know. Can't tell you. And so that blows up his plea bargain. So now it's back to three life sentences. Possibility of the electric chair. So finally he gives in and on August 7th, he pleads guilty and gives a detailed confession for all three murders. But even Josephine Ross's daughter, Mary Jane, didn't think he was guilty. Yeah. She, Whenever your victim's mom just goes, wait a minute. Victim's no. daughter. Victim, sorry, victim's daughter. Uh, I've been watching incest porn too much. Uh, oh, dear God. <laughs> And whenever your victim da victim's daughter goes, nah, I don't think he did it. You kind of got to go, well, maybe, maybe he didn't. Right. And it's, you know, victims, families, they're going to want that. It's not really closure, but at least someone to blame. You can never really get closure from an event like this. It's going to haunt you for the rest of your life. But someone to blame so that you don't have that unknown hanging over your head and for her to say, no, I don't think so, is yeah. absolutely amazing. I mean, because we've seen cases where 
I think it was in the, the Albert Fish case where they just kept on bringing in people and, you know, the victim's mother would be like, yep, that, that was, that was him. That was him. That was the guy that was in my house and, and took my baby. And then it turned out that wasn't the guy. And then the next guy they bring in, she's like, Oh, yep. That, that's him. That's him. Because they want to have that mystery closed. They want punishment. They want justice. And we're going to see how starkly Mary Jane's uh, ideas about Hiram's innocence are contrasted with other family members down the line. So uh, what happens is he does end up pleading guilty to all the charges as well. That includes the burglaries and the murders and everything else. He was really afraid of the electric chair. That was a lot of his motivation. That, and they just kept on hounding him and badgering him. He said, quote, Before I walked into the courtroom, my counsel told me to just enter a plea of guilty and keep my mouth shut afterwards. I didn't even have a trial. And he also said at one point, I confessed to save my life. I, I, yeah, yeah, I believe him. But now, you know what? Like, because there was another interview he did, and he goes, the thing is, once you're dead, there's no clearing things up. When you're alive, you still have a chance to prove that you weren't guilty. So I was better off being alive. <laughs> yeah, death death is also the death of of hope of clearing your name. So he, he he now he did actually this probably had to be a horrifyingly emotional time for him. He did uh make three suicide attempts uh around this period of time. He's uh, but, 17 years old. Yeah. <laughs> of course he did. Yeah, you're already a hormonal mess. And then you add being tortured by the police, badgered into confessing for horrifying murders. Your name is all through the press so that even if you're able to clear your name with the police and walk free, it's not going to goddamn matter because the press and the public all think you did it. Everybody but one victim's daughter thinks you did it. Even your own attorneys. Yeah. <sighs> I am angry. So he does get... Uh, in the aftermath of all of this happening, he's, he's still, he, he confesses officially in court, but in uh, anywhere but court, he's saying, I am innocent. And he even told one person who knew Mr. Degnan, who came in to, to talk to him, he said, you know what? I'm just saying, Mr. Degnan should really keep an eye out for the real killer because that person is walking the streets and that could mean his other daughter's still in danger. Like he was thinking of Suzanne's sister. Uh, that's a, and worrying that, about her. That's not a killer, right there. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. So he ends up with these three life sentences. He was originally told, as part of the plea bargain, that they would run concurrently. So, you know, basically they they completely overlap each other. Uh, but nope, they made them consecutive. So, yeah. Uh, his mother. When saying goodbye to him, she gave him a kiss and said, be a good boy, mind the regulations. The family, in the aftermath of this, his family changed their last name to Hill and his parents divorced. While he was in prison is when he, he recanted his confession and started opening up about the horrifying interrogation practices he'd been subjected to. And the thing about this is, I I mean, maybe they're out there, but I didn't see any real strong denials from the police that this happened. Yeah. Well, because after he's in jail, why do they give a shit? It's too late. Yeah. They don't, have, they don't have to say anything because nobody gives a shit what a guilty man says. 
yeah, there is that. On the one hand, he's smearing their their good name. But on the other hand, yeah, you're exactly right. Who's who's going to listen and who's going to care? People are less inclined to believe him, so they're not going to expend the energy. But but the thing is, is that they, you would think still, if they were being unfairly accused of horrible interrogation tactics that could, you know, really potentially impact further investigations, because then anyone could come along and say, well. Pfft, that wasn't a real confession. They just, you know, they were horribly interrogating me and torturing me. Look, look at Hirons. They did it to him. They did it to me too. And so you would think that they would want to deny that just at least to get their story out there, regardless of the source of, of the in, brutal interrogation stories. But I, I feel like if they even addressed it at all, it would just draw more attention to them. That's a possibility, too. It could have been public relations wise. It could have gone either way. And they might have been advised just to keep their mouths shut about it. So um, in jail at first, he was he was pretty listless, as one would be. He just kind of wandered through the days. He listened to classical music. He played Pinochle. He worked in the library. He also had a, a fun hobby. He would uh, chase and catch the jailhouse cockroaches and then affix little hats that he had made to their heads with glue and then let them go again to run around with their little little cockroach hats. Aww. <laughs> that I found playful and delightful even though it's cockroaches and also gross. So You find your entertainment wherever you can. You yeah, really do. On the outside you listen to podcasts. On the inside you glue hats to cockroaches. I think cockroach hats might be a good episode subtitle. Might also be a great name for a punk band. Yeah, right. In 1952, he did uh, get a petition for another look at his case, was accepted. 40, witness 40 witnesses testified in a 10-day hearing that only ended in complete denial of his petition. And so that hope was just smashed to pieces. And then it was right about that time throughout the 50s and then in the 60s, that he went back to learning. Remember, he had been a very smart, bright boy in college, and he had he had really you know planned on getting into electrical engineering. So he was like, "Well, I'm in prison. I have all this time on my hands. May as well learn everything I can." And he did. He learned electronics. He learned TV and radio repair. He was the first prisoner in Illinois to ever attain a four-year bachelor's of arts degree. He would go on to add another 250 credits to that via correspondence courses. And he also used his uh, knowledge that he gained to do the, the whole jailhouse lawyer thing. He aided uh, prisoners in their appeals and also helped many of them get their GEDs. Now, there were three cases, three classes he wasn't allowed to take. Physics, chemistry, and celestial navigation. It took me a second on the last one, but I figured it out. Mm -hmm. Okay, please, please explain. Well, uh, uh, these are all things you can do to fucking escape and, and go across the fucking sea. Yeah, you well, can use the physics and the chemistry to get out. And then when you get out, not even across the sea, you can just use it to, to navigate to the next city over if you know, or, or wherever you want to go. If you, if you know where the stars are, you know, in the sky at different times uh, of year, you can be like, I should head in that mm -hmm. direction if I want to go north. So, yeah, it, it did take me a second, though, when I, I was like, why celestial navigation? He's not going to be on a boat anytime soon. And I was like, oh, well, no, that makes sense. That would be handy if you were trying to escape. So didn't think about that. Yeah. So be sure yeah. if you're going to commit any crimes, 
get those three classes under your belt first, then do the rest of your classes on the inside. It's all about prioritizing people. Mm -hmm. He painted watercolors and sold them. And he was a model prisoner during the entire time he was incarcerated, which we're going to find out is a long time. He only ever had six cellmates that entire time. He managed to do really well. And the thing is, is that you think about a, a good looking 17 year old boy coming into prison. And there's the typical thought of, oh, God, what are they going to do to him? He managed to avoid that. He, he specifically said, nope, actually, I never got raped. I'm so yeah, he, happy he for said him. that, like, I am, too. I'm actually really impressed because what he did is he actually immediately went to, like, the older guys and was like, teach me what I'm supposed to do here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was really, again, he was a smart kid. Yeah, a smart guy, plain and simple. Yeah, yeah. In 1965, he was granted institutional parole for the Degnan conviction. And then his second sentence began out of the three. And all of it should have been over by 1983. But during this time period, there was a shift in the in, in the penal system where they, criminal justice-wise, they were like, well, we're not really big on rehabilitation anymore. We're big on punishment. And so that changed some things, some mechanisms by which he would have gotten fully released in 1983. In 1975, he was moved into minimum security. He got himself a job at the Stateville Honor Farm, and then he en ended up getting a tr another transfer to an experimental prison that was kind of like everybody had more freedom. They could wear civilian clothes. It was co-ed. So there were women and men in the same prison able to, to socialize. But of course, sex was against the rules. Some people did break the rules, but he insisted. I did not. He said even... I was I was a virgin before my convictions and I remained one. He said, quote, I could be made into a pope and I'd have the celibacy taken care of. Well. Yeah, right. And then 1983 comes around and it actually seems like the whole all the things that had happened that made his full release impossible might be overcome because there was a ruling that said, no, you can't deny parole in cases like his from that time period. It's unconstitutional. He, uh, because he was convicted in be prior to 1973 when the rules changed. It's sort of like you can't just grandfather these people into the new rules. No, they should be, you know, the old rules should still apply to them from the time they were convicted. But here's the thing. Degnan's sister and Suzanne Degnan's sister and her brother, uh, when he was ordered to be released after this whole ruling they got together and they lobbied the attorney general the media they got the illinois senate in everybody worked together to block his release and in the re 1983 ruling was reversed as a result and these the siblings were absolutely i get being dedicated to justice and especially for such an absolutely brutal crime to happen to such a young child i get it Again, I said, like I said, there's a comparison to be made here between uh, one daughter who says, no, I don't think that guy murdered my mother and is able to look at evidence and, and really be rational about it. And these two siblings, one of whom was not alive. <laughs> he was not even born yet when all of this happened. 
these two siblings who they spend the next 29 years going to every single parole hearing he had in order to lobby against his release when he was an old, he was an old man. I mean, he wouldn't have been able to do, even if he had committed these murders, he wouldn't have been able to really do a whole lot of damage to society, but he was, there were so many people in, in, in high up like attorneys general and stuff like that. They were absolutely just vehemently against him, calling him an evil man and basically trying to make people think that if this man was released, like, you know, he would behead every child in a 20 mile radius. I mean, that's not what they said, but that's the general idea. That'd be funny to do. And it's, it's such a shame though, because they, they let their own like anger at their sister's murder overtake logic Yes, exactly. That's exactly what it is. And I understand. I absolutely understand being angry at such a horrifying tragedy. But you also have to take into account, is there the possibility that somebody is suffering for this that should not be? That a miscarriage of justice has happened here? And when that happens, it's not the only problem. Okay, that person who's behind bars who maybe shouldn't be isn't the only problem. You also have the reverse. You have somebody who's maybe not behind bars. And is a danger to the public and should be behind bars. Exactly. Yeah. So it. I have. I don't think I've ever said this before in the entire time I've done this show. I am absolutely 100% convinced this is an innocent man. Same. Same. Yeah. I'm so. I think that it must be a very compelling case for us all to agree on that because we like to argue about stuff sometimes and, you know, in a fun, friendly way. We we all have our different opinions. Is the dude a thief? Yeah, dude's a thief. Oh, yeah. He ain't no murderer. Absolutely. But to the Illinois Prisoner Review Board, he was. And so over those 29 years of parole hearings, he managed to develop a file that they kept that was two feet thick. You've got a file like a CVS receipt. You've got a <laughs> oh, nice. You've got a toddler-sized file. <laughs> like CBS receipt was much better than that, but that, that was good, Scott. Thank you. Uh, now, as he aged, he developed diabetes. That was it was very bad. It was bad enough that he was put in the hospital ward. He was he was having a lot of vision troubles. He was in a wheelchair. And uh, at the age of eighty three, on March fifth in twenty twelve, he died from complications from diabetes after having spent sixty five years in prison. That is more time behind bars than any other inmate in Chicago. And if you're wondering whether there was a deathbed confession, absolutely not. He maintained his innocence until the very last breath. Because he was fucking innocent. Exactly. So I want to throw in some facts from Dolores Kennedy. She's a social activist and author of William Hyren's His Day in Court. So in 1987, she began to research his case. In 1994, she formed a justice team um, headed by Jed Stone, who was a criminal defense lawyer. They assembled psychiatrists, lawyers, analysts, fingerprint experts, professors, and concerned citizens. (laughs) I'd be damn concerned there's a murderer on the loose. A child murderer. So this is what they came up with in their research. The handwriting on the ransom note was not Bill Hirons. The lipstick message on the mall, on the wall, excuse me, was not Hirons. 
um, the lipstick message and the ransom note written by different people. Um, the FBI report stated that there's no hidden indentation on the note, which was one of the things that they, they accused Hirons of. Um, the quote-unquote bloody fingerprint from the Brown apartment was rolled. It was actually lifted from a fingerprint card and not a print left behind. Um, the print that they found on the face of the Degna note was not on the face of the note. It was actually on the back of the note, making that evidence fraudulent. The lie detector test, which Christy already mentioned, showed that he was innocent. He passed his lie detector test. Um, and, and like handwriting experts, everybody, like there's not a single person that says that any of this supposed evidence points back to him. Yeah, right? Mm -hmm. It's amazing. I just But they do really like Richard Thomas for this. I yeah, I think I think there's a strong possibility, especially considering I mean, granted, yeah, you do get false confessions, especially as we're seeing here, sometimes for various, you know, sometimes they're 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 instigated by the police and attorneys, and sometimes they're just somebody trying to, you know, like get a little a little sick twisted kick out of it. But yeah, I think he, he, there's so many different clues that point to him being likely uh, as, as the murderer, at least the Dagnan one. I don't know for sure. I wonder the handwriting being the main thing that they were trying to use to tie the Dagnan murder to the other two. Uh, I, I just think that they're so different that it's hi highly likely. The I mean, murders themselves are so different. These were not the same killers. Yes, I, I exactly. got to agree. I, I got to yeah. agree. It's po Here's the thing, too. It's just after post-war. And I don't think people realized how bad things were for a lot of people post-war. <clears throat> You've got a lot of guys that were in World War II that really got a taste for killing. They became adrenaline junkies. Now, I'm not saying everybody. I'm saying a small fraction. But it's post-World War II. And a lot of these adrenaline junkies, some of them went out there and did some very violent crimes. The Motorcycle gangs. The entire reason motorcycle gangs started to creep up, if you look back in the history of it, is because you had these World War II vets who were so hooked on adrenaline, and they came back to a boring job, a boring family, and it just wasn't the same. And they started to cross the country on these motorcycles and just essentially be badasses. So, yeah, I, I don't think... I think this is three different, three different murderers. Absolutely. They don't... I would, you're right, Amber. They don't feel the same. The first I, two do. I think yeah, I connect the first two. one killer. Yeah, but agreed. Suzanne was killed by Thomas. Because you have so many differences. For, okay, so the similarities between the first two, fire escapes, women uh, were the targets, grown women, bedrooms, you had the, the knife in the neck, you had the attempts to conceal or cover or fix or something, the, the bandage, you had weird stuff going on in the, in the bedroom with bath, or in the bathroom with bathtubs, a lot of connections there. And then you didn't have hardly anything taken, Usually just the spare change or something from a purse, not very much at all. And then the Degnan murder, completely different. The only thing that connects it to the others is a window. That's it. That's the only thing. I I looked and compared the handwriting between 
the wall and the the lipstick on the wall and the Dagnan ramps, ransom note. And I would say that it's likely that the person who committed the Dagnan kidnapping and wrote that ransom note was uh, copying the handwriting from the now i'm not an expert by any means this is just my guess based on the fact that i don't think that they were committed by the same person the handwriting looks superficially similar but actually handwriting experts identified richard thomas as the author of the degnan ransom note yeah they connected it to he had written extortion letters like attempting to extort people and they said this is the same handwriting but they said that the lipstick and the note were not the same person. And so again, like, I'm saying lipstick reporter. Yeah, I agree. I don't think that I don't think our lipstick came from the killer. I think it came from somebody that wanted to scoop. Wouldn't it be insane if it was the same reporter as the Chicago Tribune one who made up the confession? It probably was. I mean, non-ethical person we can see this to begin with (laughs) would have likely been present at the scene of the crime if he was their like main crime reporter yeah oh boy that's that's something because it it basically is is in concert with the police largely this person's fault uh that hirons ended up spending the rest of his life in prison yeah and what a shame too what a shame his whole life yeah, he could have done mm-hmm. so much. He was so intelligent. He could have done a lot more being out in society. And I, I still, I, I firmly believe. And yes, like Scott said, never said this before. Well over 100 episodes, if you count our our uh, bonus episodes. Uh, no, we've never said, I, 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 don't, I don't think this person was guilty. We've said maybe. We've said, oh, I'm like, you know, 60, 40 or something like that. We've never been 100% like this. And it's unprecedented, 100% across the board. Right? <laughs> Full agreement. This is amazing. So do you guys have any other... That's all my stuff. Do you guys have anything else? That's all I got. Nope. All right. That has been the lipstick killer, which may or may not have actually used lipstick. And we are damn sure was not actually the killer. Tragedy all around. If you enjoyed listening to that tragedy... If somebody out there is a scientist, could you clone this guy and give him another chance? Could Yeah, could you... I think he needs another chance. I think so. Yeah, it's really sad. This but time yeah, we're going to have you grow up like in Vermont. You're going to stay far away from Illinois, buddy. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, um, you can help us out, as I said, at the top of the episode. We have our Patreon. We have, uh, you can review us on Apple Podcasts. Links to the Patreon and other stuff uh, that I talk about here are available in the show notes. So just click on those, any of that. You can go to our social media on Facebook and Twitter. We are old-timey, crimey there for media related to the case. So come and see us and see what, what Scott's putting up on the social media and uh, also, we have merch. You can get Old Timey Crimey merch at oldtimeycrimey.redbubble.com. It's going to say not safe for work at first or something like that. Just click the thing and you'll see all the stuff. There's nothing really horrifying there. I was just trying to follow the rules. And I have regrets. I should have just been a rebel. So, And uh, if you have any particular merch that you would like, anything ridiculous that we've said, uh, as I said, one of these days I'm going to either transcribe Scott's Raisin Rant or pay somebody else to do it and, mm-hmm. <laughs> and put that on, on merchandise. But yeah, if you have any merch in mind that you would uh, in particular like, just shoot us an email at oldtimeycrimey at gmail.com. 
And uh, don't forget to come over to Detectives by the Decade. Give that a listen where uh, I talk about the history of forensic science and Amber and Scott do some lovely uh, voice work for me. And check out Short Story Short Podcast where uh, BFF of the show, Chris Garcia, and I talk about short stories um, and we, we keep it brief. So, And also uh, Scott's podcast, Good Morning Cybertron. You can check that out if you want to see Scott in, in his uh, natural environment. Oh, God, you poor bastards. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, and it is, it is Scott at his scottiest. Mm-hmm. So. So yeah, that's that's all my bullshit. If I have any more bullshit, I am too tired to care. So what are we up to after this, guys? I'm getting bones re-yanked out of my head tomorrow. Fun. Yeah. What? His well, tooth extraction. Just, I'm just oh. getting a tooth pulled. I've got I've got this tooth in the back. It's it's not the wisdom tooth. I've had that extracted. It's like the second one down, right? So it's a thing. I could have done a root canal and save it, but why? No one's going to see it, you know? So it's just kind of like one of those deals of like, I'm 40, what? What's, I'm 48 now. Why, why not just yank one? Yeah, you may as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's, if it's... If it's the easiest and most efficient thing to do, even if it is, uh, sounds like it's going to be kind of not the most pleasant thing, but it rarely is. I'm sure a root canal is going to suck a dick. You know what? I, okay, so I've had both, and um, I think I would rather yank it if I could bear without it, just because you're at least not there for as long. Right. I dread. I know I'm going to probably have to have a root canal someday, and I dread that day. Amber, I what are you? A lot. Up? They suck. I am. Yeah, I am up scared. to not having a root canal. Yay! <laughs> so uh, that's good. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, uh, no, I am. Uh, I am going to get my resume in order. I need to rewrite it and tweak it and see what happens. Um, I am going to, I'm going to do some more reading this week and continue my, uh, really actually committing to a new year's resolution for once, you know, it's, it's hard, it's really difficult, but I am continuing, continuing to take more, uh, luxurious baths. Oh, Mm. good resolution. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I know. I figured it's been a rough year, so why not make it something that uh, I enjoy and can easily actually do? And then I will feel good about myself for accomplishing basically uh, having some some me time. (laughs) I am uh, going to use the Hitachi more. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah everybody's a winner <laughs> but yeah that's that's what i'm gonna do i'm gonna i'm gonna read in the bath and and i i give myself i put like you know my face serums on and do a whole spa experience thing it's wonderful i'm also watching uh on netflix the show maniac and i'm gonna recommend that if you like messed up shows that are also messed up but fun in a dark way. So yeah, I'm going to recommend that. So yeah, that's, that's what, that's my life for the next uh, week or so. In addition to lots and lots of podcast work and stuff, you know, all that, all that other jazz, but also there's going to be a bath at some point. Cause I'm starting to get kind of hooked. Hooray. <laughs> so, all right. That has been our show. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. We know that you have so many other options for podcasts. So it means a lot to us when you choose us please continue doing so. It is very much appreciated. And of course, a special special thank you to all of our patrons. You're the best. So 
Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening to our filthy words. And bye. 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 My sources this week are Joseph Geringer on Crime Library, Access via Murderpedia, Shirley Hemingway on Find a Grave, Chicago Tribune and Daily Register via Newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia. Wikipedia, Evening Star and Detroit Evening Times, accessed via the Library of Congress. Adam Higginbotham on GQ, Katie Serena on All That's Interesting, and Steve Mills and Ryan Haggerty on the Chicago Tribune. My sources are wikipedia.org, www.gq.com, allthatsinteresting.com, and murderpedia.org. My sources this week are murderpedia.org, allthatsinteresting.com by Katie Serena, justicedenied.org by Dolores Kennedy, newyorktimes.com by Douglas Martin, eq.com by Adam Higginbotham. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I just got a coughing fit. Will it ever end today? (laughs) All right. Here we go again. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. All right. One more time.